All right, Matthew 21. There's a little background from the Gospel of Matthew. The narrative that Matthew is portraying is Jesus coming to Jerusalem, uh, coming to his final week of life, indeed, and uh, giving teaching, uh, teaching not only to his followers and the crowds, but teaching to the Pharisees and the religious leaders who have come to intercept him, that they might trap him in his words. And he gives this parable. This is the second parable in that discourse that we have in Matthew 21. It's the discourse with the Jewish leaders in the temple, and it followed on Jesus' authority. Jesus had cleansed the temple when he arrived in Jerusalem, and the Pharisees come afterwards to intercept him and say, on whose authority did you do this? Did you Do you do these things? And Jesus gives them in response this parable that starts in verse 33. And the message of it is that there are two sides to God's patience. God has been patient, but God's patience was running out, as it were, in this moment, uh, as Jesus cleansed the temple and as Jesus rebuked the, Pharise the scribes and the Pharisees. But God has been patience, patient. But there are two sides to it. The first side is to make every hypocrite all the more answerable to their rejection of Christ. And the second side is as a kindness to those who he's leading. He's leading with patience to repentance. And the parable teaches these two sides to God's patience and concludes with the revelation that God's patience has been waiting all this time where Christ would be rejected by his own people so that he could turn to the new nation that he had chosen out of all the people of the world to become a people of his kingdom, his renewed kingdom. The parable is the story of an absent landowner, <clears throat> and that would be something that might have been common in first century Palestine. Palestine was a fertile region, but it was also a politically unsettled one. So uh, naturally, landowners would come uh, if you had means to buy land there and you'd be attracted to the prospect of great harvest in Palestine to cultivate them, but you might not actually want to move there because as famous as Palestine was for its fertility, it was infamous for its unrest. There were always uh, riots and rebellions. There was political oppression, notably from the Roman Empire. So it might make sense if you were a landowner to buy this parcel of land and let it be worked by other people, let it be worked by the locals, and so lease it out to people who would work it and manage it with a lease that might allow the farmers to live on the land and to enjoy its produce, with some portion of the produce being given to the owner each season. And so in this case, there's some particular care that we see in the parable of the landowner that he takes with his property. He's taking this vineyard, this property, and fashioning it. <clears throat> he plants the vines, it says, and he establishes a hedge all the way around it. He erects a tower. That tower would have been a watchtower. It would have served two purposes, a watchtower and a residence, probably, for um, uh, the workers. And he digs the wine press that he would have a full-service vineyard. He would grow the grapes and harvest the grapes and produce the wine all on the same property. The landowner, in other words, has arranged for every work that's needed to make this land, this parcel, a fruitful vineyard. He's spared no expense, and he's attended to every single detail to make it profitable. The landowner shows us in uh, the, the simple and the patient and the meticulous care by which God has prepared his vineyard for his people. This isn't the first time that the Lord has used this parable, uh, this symbol of the vineyard, uh, to describe his kingdom. Normally, Jesus' parables are given with one major teaching. That's common for the parables, especially in Matthew. The details around that teaching are often kind of incidental. We don't try to extract too much theology from Jesus' parables because they have one single dominant message. You don't try and allegorize too much. But here the parable has at least a few different parallels that are directly applicable to the situation and that Jesus seems to intend for us to take away a few symbols. 
few symbols pertaining to his kingdom and to the religious leaders. And we know this because uh, Isaiah used the same parable. He did it in, uh, the Lord did this in Isaiah chapter 5, where God describes Israel, his beloved, as his vineyard on a very fruitful hill. That's Isaiah 5.1. That's how Isaiah, the prophet, described his people, and that's the parable that Jesus is uh, launching off from, from Isaiah chapter 5, where Isaiah describes where uh, God dug it up and cleared out its stones, his vineyard, and he planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it, in Isaiah 5 verse 2. So we can see the, par the, uh, the parallels directly taken from Isaiah when Jesus gives this parable uh, to Israel again. So we know for sure that the vineyard is Israel. It's that beloved nation that God has planted and he's cared for and he's prepared and the landowner, of course, is God, who leases his land to these tenant farmers, to these trustees for his vineyard. And the farmers, or the vine dressers in your translation, maybe represent the religious leaders, those who were plotting at this time to have Jesus trapped and killed. It's these, these leaders that Jesus had in his sights, uh, not only in this parable, but throughout the chapter. Not the Jews writ large but those priests and the teachers of Israel who God called to shepherd his people. And if you have ever read Isaiah or Ezekiel 34 recently, you hear the words that the Lord has for his unfaithful shepherds, the people who fleece the flock and consume the fat. As leaders of Israel, these were the trustees that God had chosen to care for his kingdom, to shepherd his people. In other words, to bring forth the fruit of his vineyard. He pointed out in the last parable, the parable that precedes this one, of these two sons, when the father said, go and work in my vineyard, the father said to his first son, the first son was the repentant rebel. He said, no, I won't. But then the son repented and he did what his father asked him to do. The second son, though, was the hypocrite. He was the pretender. He said, yes, I will. I will go in the field, but I, but he didn't. And Jesus concludes the parable with the obvious question, which one did the will of his father? It wasn't the hypocrite. It was the repentant rebel. The religious leaders were the second son. They were the hypocrites. They had a manner of speech that would convince you that they were obedient, but um, they were hypocrites in their hearts. They made a show of pretending to do God's will, but they refused to do it. Their profession was empty, in other words. And the parable here describes the same hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, but it does it in a kingdom context. When Jesus brings the parable into view, he brings the kingdom into view. The vineyard is God's kingdom. And the hypocrisy of the religious leaders is not just a failure to do God's will, but it's an offense to the king. It's the withholding of the fruit that's owed to the landowner. It doesn't have to do with how well they've been tending the vineyard. It has to do with them denying the fruit of their works to the, vine, uh, to the vineyard owner. And this is the illustration that Jesus describes of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The details of the parable all contribute to describe God's patience and his graciousness towards them, and the great privilege that they had as they were abusing it as his trustees. The landowner prepared his vineyard carefully, growing and arranging the vines plant by plant, which was a very time-consuming process, had to be done over several seasons. Then he hedged in the land for protection, and he set up the tower and the wine press, and he did everything necessary to make that vineyard ready for the plucking of the fruit. And so carefully did he cultivate his vineyard that the, the lessees would come to, to work the land would be a privileged few. It would be a privilege to come to Palestine uh, or to come into your neighborhood seeing a vineyard planted and prepared that all you have to do is join up and work. 
everything has been taken care for care for you you don't have to worry about having a bountiful harvest everything is prepared for a harvest to come they would reap the benefit of the landowner's meticulous care of his vineyard how he nurtured the vines and how he prepared them and matured them and protected them and the farmers who came in as lessees to receive the land are given complete control over this vineyard. The landowner makes a covenant with them, you see in the parable, with them to tend the land and then to give him the, his share of the fruit. And then he leaves. He leaves the farmers with complete control and complete trust over the vineyard that he's preciously prepared. And the farmers do work the land. We're left to, uh, that, left that implicitly. You're left to assume that the parable, in the parable, they do it well. The landowner has chosen able workers He's chosen a select few that would work his land faithfully. They know how to tend vineyards and everything is arranged by the owner for their work to be successful. So when the fruit comes in, the harvest is expected to be a great one. They're working the land and they're gleaning its fruit and they're, but they're not giving the landowner his portion. In fact, what you see in the parable starting in verse 35 is that when the landowner sends his servants to collect the fruit, the first servant Jesus says, was beaten and sent away. So he sends his second servant. This one is killed outright. And then he sends his third servant. That st third servant is stoned. And so it went with all the servants the landowner sent. So you get the very the picture of these able vineyard workers high-handedly persecuting and killing uh, the messengers that the landowner sent. And that's not the only message. The, the more central message is not the evil of those vine dressers, but it's the patience of the landowner. The patience of the landowner who's sending servant after servant and being exceedingly patient, especially when you consider it costs the lives of his servants, those servants representing the prophets, to go and collect his due from his wicked servants. So there's some irony in the next verse. If you look in verse 37, when the landowner finally makes his decisive move, his final move, he sends his son. But he sends his son not as his act of judgment to finally evict the tenants. That would have been just, but that's not what he's doing. But he gives them one final opportunity to present the master his due. Where in sending his son, you would think he would be at the end of his patience. And he would send in his son, his heir, finally to end the matter. This landowner is patient such that with these evil farmers, that the sending of his son is not his decisive move against uh, his move of wrath against them, but it's their final and best opportunity. That's the reason he sends his son. He's still being gracious to them. Their last and best opportunity is before them to live up to the covenant that he made with them. He says to himself in verse 37, they will surely respect my son. And here it's okay if you want to shake your head at the landowner thinking, why is he wasting his time with these people? That's actually the right reaction if you read it that way. The right reaction is, why is he being so patient, so wasting his time? Because Jesus is showing you exactly how exceedingly patient God has been with his people, with his rebel people. Clearly that patience, uh, from our perspective as we look in on the parable, is wasted on those farmers. By the owner's patience, they see their opportunity. And their opportunity they see is not one to finally recognize the zeal with which this landowner would reclaim his vineyard, not to see that the landowner is determined to get his fruit, but the opportunity they see is the opportunity to get the landowner out of the vineyard forever by killing the heir, thinking that would make the vineyard theirs. The tenants had been given every opportunity, even too many opportunities, we could say, in human terms, 
to live up to their agreement. But with each servant the master sent, they just got more high-handed in their rebellion. Jesus asked the question then in the parable, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine dressers? The answer that the Pharisee gives is actually a, a good answer. It's actually a pretty classy answer if you think about it. It's obvious that this isn't a case. It's obvious to anyone who hears the parable, the owner would just evict the farmers. That would be anticlimactic. It wouldn't even be just to evict the farmers. No, it's clear even to the Pharisees that you can see from their response. It's clear to them that the only just thing in that case would be severity. Nothing less than severity would be fitting for the high-handed rebellion of those vine dressers. There's actually a play on words in the Greek that makes that answer even more dramatic. The way the New King James renders it, he says, he will destroy these wicked men miserably. Um, but there's a rhythm in the Greek. The NIV kind of brings out the force of it. He says, uh, the NIV says, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. That's the answer of the Pharisees now. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They recognize the high-handedness of that rebellion that they've been that's been described for him. And he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers, vine dressers who will render him the fruits in their seasons, verse 41. Every ounce of patience the landowner showed, these vine dressers used as their last chance, as their chance to spurn and despise the landowner and his rights. And the patience of the landowner will finally run out. The vine dressers will be dealt with severely, to say the least, and the vineyard will be given over to a new group who will bring forth the fruit. There are two themes in the parable that I think that are most prominent for our application and for how Jesus concludes the chapter. Those two themes are the patience of God and the answerability of God's people. The patience of God and the answerability of God's people, specifically our answerability for God sending his son to his people. But first, the first lesson, the patience of God. God made a covenant with his people. The covenant is expressed in almost the same words in Genesis 2 as it is in the parable of the tenants, as a matter of fact. When God prepared his garden uh, in Eden at the beginning of, uh, beginning of creation and he placed man and woman in it, this is what he says in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and rule over the garden and everything in it. Of course, you know the story since then. Immediately, man rebelled in the Garden of Eden at the instigation of Satan. And ever since then, God's been calling his people back to him through the many godly men and women that he sent to them, principally through the prophets, those prophets that extended all the way from Noah to John the Baptist, even to a people such as Israel, who it seemed were always rebelling and always grumbling, rarely thankful. God has been patiently reaching toward them and calling them to return. The Lord tells his people that he doesn't give you just one chance to be taught of him. He doesn't just take a people and give them his law and his covenant and turn them loose to bear fruit. He patiently and long-sufferingly teaches them time after time, sin after sin, rescue after rescue, in the same way that the landowner meticulously prepares his vineyard. This is the whole story of God's covenant people. Isaiah describes the patient, long-suffering way he teaches. This is what we read in Isaiah 28, verses 9 and 10. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, in other words, those who have just come into the covenant, those just drawn from the breasts, for precept must be upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Tim Keller 
uh, a preacher who uh, died very recently wrote a book on the parable of the prodigal son. He called it the prodigal God. The title draws your attention. He points out to the the use that we use the word prodigal frequently to refer uh, to the younger son in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. The younger son, we call him prodigal because of the prodigious way he spent his money. We sometimes talk about our prodigals. The prodigals that we know is those who are wayward. That's not really the meaning of prodigal. Prodigal means prodigious or spending uh, excessively, spending easily. The younger son in the parable of the prodigal son was lavish. He spent excessively and he wasted what he had on unnecessary things. And Keller points out that the prodigal is a good way to describe the father in the parable as well. This wasn't just the parable of the prodigal son. It was the parable of the prodigal father. The father was prodigal because he was lavish and he was profuse in the patience that he had for his son. And he was unnecessarily lavish in the great celebration that he had when the son returned. The message of Keller's book is that we have a prodigal God, one who's lavishly patient with sinners. Even to what to us would seem an excessive degree, God was lavish in his patience with Israel, even when they would kill his prophets. Most recently at this time, it was God's patience that cost the life of John the Baptist. And you have to think about it that way, right? God was not just leaving John the Baptist in prison. He did. Uh, he was actually using John the Baptist uh, as an extension of his patience. John the Baptist was a victim, in other words, of God's patience, you could say. Not only is God more patient than his people deserve, but God was so patient with the wicked that he would sacrifice the lives of even his faithful ones for them. And I think we have to let that stew in our minds a little bit, that there is this side to God's patience, that he's going to sacrifice the lives of his faithful people for the sake of having patience to the wicked. That's just another way of stating the Great Commission, right? I didn't come up with that. That's the other side of the Great Commission, that God's saints will spend their lives because God is intending to show patience to the wicked. God spends his faithful people to buy patience for the wicked. In fact, our God is so patient, ultimately, and so prodigious that he sent the Son himself, his righteous one, his heir. Patient, then, would be an understatement to describe what God does when he deals with sinners. Prodigal is a better word. As a matter of fact, let's step back from the parable for a minute and look at what's happening in the scene. The religious leaders have come to Jesus with the intent to trap him by a claim to authority, specifically a claim to authority over the temple. Remember that we're uh, reading this in light of Jesus cleansing in the temple earlier in Matthew 21. They're there to force some words from him about his authority, specifically over the temple, that would show that he rejected the priests and the elders' authority. This is the picture of what that final confrontation between the landowner's son and the tenant farmers would be, where the son comes in the authority of the landowner, claiming his rights over the produce, and the tenants rejecting him, prepare to kill him. And what's Jesus doing, knowing all this? Knowing that the Pharisees and the scribes are there to trap him, to find some words by which he claims divine authority so that they might kill him, what does Jesus do knowing what their intentions are? How does Jesus respond to the disingenuous trap of the religious leaders? What does he do? Here he teaches them. He teaches them with parables, just like he taught his disciples. I think I've, I think that's interesting. It's amazing, in, as a matter of fact, that even as Jesus is being set up for his own death, he's responding with yet more patience to the scribes and the Pharisees even. He's teaching them. He's doing the exact same thing he's doing. He's been doing since he began his ministry. The same thing that 
caused the masses of crowds to follow Jesus because they were astounded by his teaching is the same thing he's doing to those recalcitrant and hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. When the crowds gathered around him and he sat down and spoke parables to them, and when they asked him tough questions, they asked him various questions, dumb questions, hostile questions, things like, why could we not drive the demons out, Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? What is the greatest commandment? Why do you speak in parables? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? All these questions Jesus dealt with patiently. And now the question that inspires this parable, the question in verse 23, who gave you this authority? He answered them with more parables, even to these who only plan to use his teaching against him. God is that landowner who you're tempted to shake your head at saying, now you're being too patient. You're wasting patience on these people, wasting your time teaching these hardened people as if they want to hear anything you have to say. You know before the parable ends that what those tenants are going to do to the landowner's son. So why can't the landowner see it as well, you think? And we know, our, we, as gospel readers, the gospel ends with what those Pharisees will do with Jesus' teaching. They don't have in mind to learn from him by the questions they ask him. They have in mind to ask him questions until he gives the words that will condemn him. But God is patient all the while which on the one hand you should be thankful for. It's the real reason you are in the kingdom today. I'll venture to guess that you didn't repent at your first warning from God's word. That's the story of just about nobody in the church, that God gives his law and you read it and you immediately come to repentance. Maybe someone can prove me wrong, but I don't know anyone that's had that Christian testimony that they read the law for the first time and it immediately convicted them of sin. It should have, shouldn't it? The law was sufficient to do that. But God is more patient than that. God is more patient with you as he drew you into the kingdom. He gave his law to you, as it were, line after line and precept after precept. He prepared you. He prepared you as his vineyard to receive the good news, to receive the son that he sent. Even as Christians, we need God's patience to bring us to repentance. Even as Christians, we struggle in our sin. When we say we struggle in our sin, that's giving us the easy way. It's describing the, uh, too easily what we do with sin. When we say we struggle with sin, we take full advantage of God's patience. That's what we're doing when we're struggling with sin. Uh, we're resisting repentance. But God all the while is being patient, patient with us. We need that patience because we need, in our wickedness, we still love sin too much. We love him too little. God's patience is what brings us to repentance. We need to be taught we need to be taught not just one time, but precept upon precept and line after line. And in various seasons, we need good times and we need bad, and we need to endure both of those. God is patient to lead us through both of those good times and bad times so we can have experiences. So we need God to orchestrate those life experiences to keep teaching us our need. Even as Christians, we're taking advantage of God's patience because of the sin that we still let hold onto our hearts, even after his warnings. But on the other hand, God is not naive in being patient, because he has a purpose in being patient. That's not just that purpose he has in being merciful to sinners. That is part of his purpose, but his purpose is also to make the hypocrites all more the more answerable for rejecting him. He is doing two things. He's being patient to us, to bring us to repentance, and he's being patient with the hypocrite to make them all the more answerable for their rejection. This is the second 
theme of the parable, the answerability of God's people. These tenant farmers were given reign over the landowner's land in his absence. The only condition of their lease was that they bring him his portion in due time. And there was nothing difficult to understand about it or even difficult to achieve in that condition. It wasn't a long covenant. It was just here, work the land and give me my portion. The owner had set up the vineyard thoroughly to do just that. So they were charged with simply tending it and returning their fruit to the owner. So when they beat and sent away the first servant who came to collect the produce, the owner was within his rights to evict them then and there. It was his patience that made him send servant after servant and prophet after prophet to make his claim until finally he sent that last and unequivocal message in his son. When the Lord is this patient with those who persistently reject him, it just serves to make God's judgment on them that much more just when he visits it on them. It's not going to be just an eviction as if they would have rejected him once, but it's going to be putting an end to those wretches miserably. Put those wretches to a wretched end, he says. Even the Pharisees knew that intuitively as they heard the parable. They knew that such men as these tenant farmers needed something more than just eviction to be treated justly. They saw it more fitting that the landowner would bring those wretches to a wretched end. God's patience, in other words, doesn't come for free. Every moment of patience without repentance adds to the judgment of the hypocrite. And abusing God's patience is not just about breaking God's commandments. Remember, that wasn't fundamentally the problem with the farmers. They were doing what they were commanded to do in terms of working the vineyard, working it well. If we go back to the analogy of the parable, they were bringing forth fruit. They were in a fruitful vineyard and they were skilled vine dressers. All outward appearances were that life was good in the least vineyard. The only problem was that even as they worked diligently in their owner's field, they had no intention of giving the landowner his portion of their work, dedicating their work to him, which was the landowner's condition. They were working, but they were working for themselves, not the owner of the vineyard. There are two ways that you can sin, and this is what the vine dressers and the Pharisees describe for us. There are two ways that you can sin and you can abuse God's patience. You can sin by breaking his commandments because breaking God's commandments are setting yourself up in opposition to God. Or you can sin by being very, very good by living by the commandments, but living for them, not for the Lord's sake, but for your own. The Pharisees were those latter sinners. They were the vine dressers who were very, very good, very, very good at fulfilling the commandments but doing it for their own sake, not for the sake of the landowner. They knew their profession pretty thoroughly. They were well-trained in the precepts of their Lord. They knew the words that every prophet of every prophet God had sent. And some of them did what was very good. They were even good tithers. Jesus commends them, commends the Pharisees in several instances. They were good tithers, for example, frequent fasters. They did a lot that was right, but they didn't have any intention of honoring or giving thanks to God with what they had and with what they did. When the landowner came to those tenants in his anger, even the best and most able vine dresser received the same punishment as the rest. The one who fulfilled all the laws of the harvest got the same punishment that the laziest vine dresser did. Because as much as they excelled in cultivating the grapes of the vineyard, they didn't do it for the sake of the landowner. They did it for themselves. Because God has shown you patience, you are answerable to God, not only to repent of what wrong you've done, but this is Keller again. You must also repent for the right that you've done that was not of faith. 
to become truly Christian, this is from uh, the prodigal God, to become truly Christian, you must also repent of the reasons you did anything right. And I think that should stick with us as well. We not only uh, repent for the sins of breaking God's commandment, but repent for the sin of doing God's commandments, but doing them for the wrong reasons, for doing them for reasons other than faith, other than giving glory to God. We can condemn ourselves by doing right if we do it for our own sake. That's the problem of the hypocrite. That's what Jesus is addressing here. The hypocrite doesn't have a problem with God's commandments. The hypocrite can always look at himself and count the ways that he's doing right. The hypocrite loves to count the ways that he's doing right. He obsesses with the ways that he's doing right, but the hypocrite never really examines the reasons he does anything right. That's what makes him a hypocrite, because whatever good the hypocrite does, he does it to assure himself that he's his own authority, that he's his own God. He does it to keep at arm's length the true God who claims authority and loyalty over him. The hypocrite obeys the law, but obeys it for the wrong reasons. He's obedient, but he's disloyal. The hypocrite hypocrite obeys not out of faith in his Lord, but to justify himself, to claim for himself the authority to be judge over his own work. As a person in covenant with God, you're ultimately not answerable for the ways that you've done wrong. You're answerable for your responsive loyalty to the landowner, to God. That's what righteousness by faith means. You're not answerable for your sins of breaking God's commandments. You're answerable for your loyalty, for responding to God in faith and to the Son he sent in Jesus Christ. And this is where the interchange stops. For the Pharisees, it stops being fun and games. In verses 42 and 43, Jesus says to them finally, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Jesus' point here in reciting Psalm 118 to them is to show them that as a professional and knowledgeable, as professional and knowledgeable vine dressers that they were in rejecting Jesus' authority as they have, they were also thieves. Just as the tenants were living on the owner's land, All the while intending to steal his property, the Pharisees, the priests, and the elders of the people had rejected the son who came in his father's name to gather up his harvest. In verse 45, the Pharisees now see that in the parable, Jesus was making a point directly about them. They finally connect the actions of the vine dressers with their rejection of the Messiah. In the parable, The vine dressers don't simply kill the son, but Jesus says they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. It's kind of a strange sequence of events to put in a parable that they would first cast him out of his vineyard before they kill him. I don't know if you've noticed that as you read the parable. They cast him out before they kill him. It makes the story to overlay with the exact same strategy the Pharisees were actually preparing. They were preparing not just to kill Jesus, but to get him out, get him out of Jerusalem, get him out to Golgotha before they kill him. They were going to arrange to have Jesus first put out of the temple and tried by the Gentiles before they would have him killed and have him killed not by themselves, but by the Romans, taking him first outside Jerusalem. The Pharisees successfully made that connection between the action of the vine dressers and their rejection of the cornerstone because it was their very plot, the very sequence of events they were planning against the Messiah. They saw Jesus narrating to them their plot against him. And bringing them to this conclusion, this shocking conclusion that all of this, Jesus says, as he reads Psalm 118, all of this 
is the Lord's doing. His patience with Israel's leaders, who being in charge of his vineyard only served themselves, the rejection of the prophets that he sent to warn them over and over, even as they reject him, his patient teaching, precept by precept, line by line, and their ultimate rejection of him, which will be the final straw of God's patience, and would be the beginning of God's judgment on them, which would be like the vine dressers. This was not their doing. This was the Lord's doing, laying upon them their own trap. What would have been the most enraging was how Jesus used their own outrage against them. When they answered in their indignation, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They now understand that it applied to them. They were like David when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin. David if you remember, in Second Samuel 12, was so outraged at the villain in Nathan's parable that he said, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The difference was that when Nathan pointed the finger at David and he said, You were the man, David repented. For the Pharisees, the confrontation served the opposite purpose. It served to harden them in their rejection of the Messiah. After all of God's long-suffering patience, it would be just as Psalm 118 prophesied. The landowner's son would be rejected, put out of the vineyard, and killed by those who sought to have his authority for themselves. But even that was the Lord's doing. God wasn't naive in being patient with his faithless vine dressers. He was showing his patience to make those leaders all the more answerable for their rejection, for their corruption, that God might be justified in visiting condemnation on them. In the passage we read in Isaiah 28, where the Lord describes his patience to Israel, he goes on describing how he brought his word to them. He says, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that, verse 13, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. To show the people of God that the faithless leaders of the Jews can't mock God. God will be patient with them, but they will not ultimately mock him. They're still answerable to him. In fact, he did this all for the purpose of his glory, that he would bear with great patience objects of wrath, Romans 9, that he would make his wrath and his power known and to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, to those of us who are in Christ. As the father exalted the stone that the builders rejected and put out of the vineyard and made him into the chief cornerstone of the new household of God, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, verse 43, he's signaling the new nation that he's making from himself. Not a replacement of Israel, but a renewed Israel, cleared out of the false professors of the truth, the selfish vine dressers with no loyalty to the landowner, and called out as a spiritual house, a spiritual temple, with vine dressers who love the Son and are loyal to the Son and who dedicate their fruits of work to him. And not only from the Jews, as Romans 9.24 tells you, but called out from the Jews and Gentiles. I will call them my people, he says, who are not my people. And I will call her my, my loved one, who is not my loved one. Just as the patience of the Lord was for wrath for the religious leaders of Jews uh, of, and the Jews of Jews, Jesus' day, the same patience is salvation for you, who are called into his new nation called after Jesus Christ, after his name, to whom belongs the vineyard and the kingdom forever. 
And so with a passage, we're forewarned here that God's patience does not mean he plans to deal lightly with unbelief. Let's not deceive ourselves thinking that when we don't see consequences for our sin, that God is going to deal lightly with our unbelief. On the contrary, the longer he's patient with unbelief, the harsher the penalty will be for those who take advantage of his patience. And so we should be on our guard that on the one hand, we don't sin by breaking God's commands. And on the other hand, we don't sin by being very, very good and denying our Lord the fruit of it by not acting in faith. We repent of our sin, so we don't let our sin set ourselves in opposition to God. And on the other hand, we repent even of the good that we do that's done for our own benefit, but living and depending on the grace and knowledge that we stand in Jesus Christ. It's grace and knowledge that saves us. We live in and act in faith for the sake of the glory who called us in him and gave us his knowledge in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, you are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. We hear your truth today and we tremble at the, the idea that we would be like a people who have enjoyed your long patience but have not repented and given thanks. So have mercy on us and give us a sense of urgency in our walk with you that we would not desire to waste time. We would waste no time putting away the sin that entangles us and wasting no time showing unbelievers with our words and our works that we love that you've placed us in here by your Holy Spirit. We are your workers and we desire our fruit to be ever abounding into your hands alone. And so we pray that you do that in us in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.